Hi, I'm Dr. Mona, host of the podcast Belonging Reimagined. All of us have felt isolated at some point in our lives, especially in these last few years. Years ago, I was on a quest to understand this human need to feel seen, to feel embraced, to feel celebrated, this need to feel a sense of belonging. And as a mental health therapist, a professor, and a researcher, as a parent, I've heard countless stories from people about feeling disconnected in their lives, which can lead to anxiety, depression, feeling alone, or unfulfilled. From those stories, I developed a model that's helped others, including myself, to create more connection in the world around us and the world within ourselves even. During each episode, you'll hear guests name various challenges in their lives as they share fascinating stories of being silenced or being too much or feeling not enough. And you'll also hear inspiring stories of overcoming those challenges. We're going to be talking with guests about this human need to belong. No topic is off limits. Look, I am so excited to share this podcast with y'all. You'll be right where you belong. The very first guest of the Belonging Reimagined podcast, the one and the only Sherry Ford Jacobs, soon to be Dr. Sherry Ford Jacobs. You're one of my favorite people in the world. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Mona. And you know that feeling is mutual. I feel the exact same way about you. And it's so excited to be here. And I appreciate you asking me and thinking about me. I love it. I have to talk about how we met. Do you remember how we met? I do. Okay. All right. We'll see what your side of the story is. This is what I remember. I remember I was working at another place of employment and I woke up one day. It was really like this. I had no intention of doing this. I woke up one day and I said, I'm going to start a group practice of mental health therapist. Boom. Just like that. Now, I, I was already a mental health therapist at a different place. And, and, and it was all well and good there, but I just had this, this calling, this thing on my heart. And it was one of those things that within 48 hours, I got it all approved, Secretary of State and all that. It, I mean, that doesn't happen. You know, I don't know if it's kismet. I don't even know if I'm using that word right, but it was one of those things that just all came together. The universe aligned and said, you now have a private practice, but it was just one person in it. And that was just me. And so I called up my old friend, Richard, who actually had trained me 20 years ago as a therapist. And I called him up and I said, hey, would you ever be interested in seeing like one or two clients a week in this little practice thing that I'm starting? And he said, yeah, I'll do it. And I was shocked. And I was like, oh, shit, now I got to like actually do this. So he said, yes, I had two things that I wanted. And they were only two things, Sherry. I want to make sure that this practice is rooted in education because I wanted to actually learn something. And then the second thing was I want to have a practice that is centered in diversity and equity, inclusion and belonging. I need to be able to speak to how we practice diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging and also we need to be like supporting one another as far as training and education and stuff. And I really thought maybe it would be four or five people and that was it. And so this friend Richard, right, he calls me one day and he goes, hey, I think I know somebody that could be a great connection for you. Like I think the two of you would really connect. 
And so he texts me this. This is Sherry Ford Jacob. This is Sherry. This is Mona. It was like a group text, the three of us. I didn't even meet you, and I already felt something. And so you're like, nice to meet you, blah, blah, blah. We were on the horn, on the phone with each other. And as soon as I heard your voice, I said, this is, this is a ride or die. I mean, that does not happen. I was like, this is a ride or die. I have to have you in my life. And that's my story. And I'm sticking with that. <laughs> yes. Yes. That is consistent with what I remember. And yes, Richard approached me and said to me something similar to what you just said. You said to him, do you think you would lo- want to be a part of a practice? I have a good friend and, you know, we all went to the same educational institution. Right, together. Right. It's all about inclusion and not performative inclusion, but real inclusion and equity and in the education piece, because I have a passion for education and bringing that together with the practical pieces of what we do in mental health. And so, yes, this sounded actually too good to be true, but I was like, okay, yeah, let's connect and let's have a conversation. And for sure, as soon as we connected, Mona, there definitely was a chemistry there. We know we have people in our life for seasons, but I knew this was going to be a long season. So Mm -hmm. I agree with yeah, that's that's how it happened. And we never looked back from there. We never looked back from there. I was sharing some of my own stories with you that I'd had at different places of employment. I'm not picking on one in particular. And I was hearing stories from you. And you've worked in corporate America. You've worked in education. You've worked in mental health. You worked in so many different places. And even though we had some similarities in feeling silenced, there were unique pieces to yours. The thing that really stood out to me was the combination of being Black, being queer, and having the added layer of being a woman as well. And how that was showing up for you in spaces around people who look just like you, you know, and still feeling this disconnect in those spaces. When you were younger and having been married before to a man and all the experiences that were coming about. I hear so many people say that everything is is better now. Everything is different. And it's like, for whom? This is what I want to know. You know, who are we talking about? <laughs> you know, and where? Where is where is everything better? You know, it's like this kind of blanket statement. And I think when people are thinking of diversity, they're thinking in terms of just like what I was saying before, you know, like put a black therapist on your website and say that you're inclusive, but they're so different from one another. We're not thinking about the different layers of identities and how they come together in one person. You're doing research in a certain area, and I'd just love to hear more from you about that and what led to it. I am very interested in the concept of intersectionality, which is not all about identity, but it's really studying identity in service of better understanding social inequalities that happen in society. And in particular, for me, I'm interested in higher education and how that works. Based on those identities, you're right, we can be even in a space with someone that shares identities with us, but yet and still, because we can't separate out those identities and it is about integration, that experience can still be 
different and it can still feel oppressive and you can feel not understood. And I do think there's a certain type of performative uh, nature to a lot of the diversity, equity, inclusion. I have a couple of people that check those boxes. They don't have a say in anything. They don't have any decision-making power, but they're there. Mm-hmm. The tokenizing and all of those different types of oppressive systems, because this is a systemic issue that's embedded oh, yeah. uh, in our society throughout organizations. When you're inside of those mechanisms, you experience it in a different way than anybody that's outside of it that could empathize with it or be an ally for you. What do you think it was that was different for you in terms of coming into this new space that we had created together? I know this is all about belonging, but it really is that it is feeling like you're in a space where you belong, where you're accepted. And there are going to be people there that share some of your identities and people who don't. But no matter what, you can trust that belonging piece is there and that piece is being nurtured and it's being cultivated. I didn't know that at first, even though I was experiencing it. But now stepping back and observing what happened and why it was different. I think that's what it is. And I think that's what drew me into you feeling that sense of, wow, I belong in family and community with this person because they get it. Of course, now the practice is huge. And still, if you feel that no matter how few people are in the room or how many people are in the room, How is that different for you from what you had experienced before? One of the main things I experienced before was being that person that represented, oh, you check off a lot of boxes. Oh, you're Black. Oh, you're a woman. Oh, you're queer. Being that person and being there, but not really anybody really wanting to hear from you or not really even seeing you or considering you being there literally as a performative figurehead to represent and promote kind of like interest convergence. Like it is about the interests of the organization. That's really why you're there to serve a certain interest, but it has nothing to do with the reality of anything that's helpful for you or anything genuine. Well, that's exactly what tokenizing is. You're the token Black queer woman. That's right. Unless they need you to teach them something or (laughs) do labor. For free. Make them, yeah, make them understand. And why, you know, why would someone get upset about this? What happened here? Why do Black people, why does the queer community, like there's always this sense of, oh, we have this person we can go to to try to better understand and explain in a non-threatening way. Because again, being a Black woman, we have certain archetypes that exist in the society about Black women being aggressive and angry. Those archetypes go back to Jim Crow. 
Two, always having to feel like you're measuring how you're advocating for yourself or advocating for someone else, because the first thing they'll jump to is, oh, she's difficult to work with and she's aggressive. I can't tell you if I had a penny for every time I was characterized as aggressive when all I was doing was advocating and speaking about something and standing up for myself or someone else. I'd be a millionaire for sure. There's no fine line between being aggressive and advocating. They're just completely different. They don't even live in the same on the same continent. People will make it sound like there's some fine line and that you are never on the other side of it. Like you're never actually advocating. You know, you're you're just being aggressive. And I know I've heard you tell stories about that before. I mean, even in the different power net dynamics that we see in higher education, in mental health graduate programs. I have heard that. I have seen that happen to Black women, just sitting there in class, just raising a hand and, and just a little small challenge to a professor and all hell breaks loose from the professor side, who, by the way, gets very aggressive. Yes. Your research is really in this area, isn't it? It is. And this is kind of what brought me a sense of community with Richard, who, by the way, the way we met was he filled in for an instructor who at the last minute wasn't able to teach. And so he taught a class. This is the first time that I truly witnessed Richard identifies as a white man, an instructor actually respond to oppressive type behavior and language that was going on within the classroom or graduate setting were all PhD students and observing him actually tell someone who identifies as a white woman, you know, you're taking up a lot of space right now. <laughs> I just could not believe that was the first time that had happened. And I'm 55, by right. the way. Right. First time that had ever happened in an educational setting ever, because it's usually people waiting to tell you, hey, calm down to save whatever other person when all you're doing is giving your opinion. Mm -hmm. So yes, that's kind of what spurred my research to be interested in looking at counter narratives Mm -hmm. of Black queer women who attend historically white institutions, PhD students, and how they experience those spaces and what actually happens. And I'm really interested now in self-empowerment because that's what we have the most control over. We have the most control over self. And so it's going to be great when allies and other people do things, but we really have to learn how to um, be self-empowered and advocate for ourselves. And there's no way around the aggressive story narrative that there is. The power is in knowing that that narrative is out there and advocating anyway. It's almost like, just deal with it. Yes. Here is my counter narrative to that. I know I am advocating for myself. You can say I'm being aggressive, but I'm advocating for myself. And the the implication there is, "Mm, just deal with it. You'll get over it. Yes. Yep. And it's like Patricia Hill Collins says, it's really speaking truth to power. And that's really, Mona, exhausting work. It's Mm -hmm. tiring to have to, in so many different spaces, have to show up that way. 
and have to have that strength because, you know, that's another archetype where super women, black women, they're strong. They can handle anything. There is no into what they can deal with and handle and actually know we are limited social beings just like everyone else who needs recharge, who needs support, who needs community. And I think, again, for the first time with Richard, somebody else took on that weight, somebody else that looked like the person who was really actually microaggressing. And if anything, that was the person that was being aggressive we know how micro and macro aggressions work. You know, it's that plausible deniability. It's, hey, I was just giving you a compliment in reality. You know, it's very um, oppressive. Of course it is. Yeah. And it did. It needed to come from him. Richard's point was, well, perhaps you might want to further interrogate that fear because we're actually in Zoom and nobody can do any harm to you. So I'm not really what sure what you're afraid of right now. And so, yes, I will always, always, always love Richard. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I don't even know if he knows, but he showed up and he showed up in that way the entire semester in that class for everyone, not just for me and others who look like me, but really for everyone. Right. He, he does a better job at that than anybody I've ever seen. It's really amazing. So let me ask you, Sherry, how do these experiences become exacerbated or impacted with your queer identity? I think it adds another layer because now people in my own Black community, Black women, even in that community, now there's this, oh, but it's not okay to be queer. Mm -hmm. Black, we can accept the Black identity, we can accept you being a woman, but you're queer. And so it adds another layer, which is a very disappointing experience for me, because if one of us are not free, none of us are. And so how can you, who is being discriminated against every day for the way you identify now, otherize someone else Mm -hmm. and use that, but it's being replicated. They're literally using the same mindset now on another group that's being used on them. And I think, again, that does extra damage because now you have people within the system that are perpetuating the same narrative and that's how it exacerbates it. And another one that I'm really starting to feel now too is ageism. Being 55 in a very ageist society Mm -hmm. is now a lot of times coming into play. And that's one I knew I guess was coming, but I've recently been on the other side of. Yeah. I just hit 50. I've been getting a lot of yes, ma'ams. (laughs) Oh, yes. Miss Sherry, that's who I am. And again, I I do understand they're trying to be polite. That's the Southern way. But the reality of it is um, it's a gendered form of ageism. Mm -hmm. Um, Rarely is once a man, oh, he's over 40. Because he's over 40, he's Mr. Jim or Mr. John. Most people refer to me as Miss Sherry, when the environments that I'm moving in at work, in school environments, all of those environments. You know what I got recently in the past few months? People half my age calling me sweetheart. No, we're not going to do that today. So I just tell them my name's Mona. That's been my solution to it. 
here's what I'm hearing though, Sherry, is that the spaces that you go in where there's that sense of of truly feeling seen, feeling embraced, being celebrated. These are the ways that I describe belonging. They now become narrowed because I can't just say, I'm going to go to my ethnic enclave and feel completely seen, embraced, celebrated there. And then when we also move to the queer community, there's always that social hierarchy. In any communities we go into, there's that hierarchy. It's in the queer community. Also, there's racism in the queer community as well. How have you identified spaces that feel secure and consistent and reliable for you? There's not many, Mona, and they're hard to find. I think that's why, again, Noor is such a great space because it is one of those spaces for me. I think you have to create that social capital. You have to create those communities. Mm -hmm. If people aren't at a certain place to be able to embrace otherness and just still seeing difference as the enemy, Mm -hmm. to me, that's where we get stuck and spin our wheels. Those spaces are really difficult to find. And that's work that I want to do as well is like creating more of those spaces in different ways for people to be able to be in community. But there aren't a lot of those spaces, or at least I haven't found them. I've been in North Carolina since 2013. I don't see anyone being any more inclusive as far as what I experienced right. than the other. So it just, because this country, this society is founded on other means bad, different means bad, it's everywhere. And so those spaces are really difficult to find. And I think we have to get more into creating those spaces versus trying to find them. That's the only way I think to feel like not at the mercy of the dominant society. That's why I created the practice that I did because it really was a build it and they will come. I I thought it would be like three to five people. I didn't know it was going to be 38, which it is now and no one's ever quit. What do you do when greatness comes along? You just say, yeah, come on. Yeah. Join the practice. (laughs) It is phenomenal. I think that's a testament to to so many people feeling this disconnect and wanting to connect with other people and willing to do it, willing to show up in those spaces, just not knowing where they are. Like someone has to start somewhere. I've met my people, you know, and that's the thing is that you don't have to have this like years long relationship with folks to feel that sense of of being seen, of feeling embraced, of feeling celebrated, of feeling, you know, loved. And you're 55 now and saying that you just more recently got that. How did you get through it, Sherry? That's what I want to know. Because you don't have a choice, right? You really start to learn that knowledge really is power. First, you have to know and be aware before you can actually do something about it. And so understanding that you define who you are, self-concept, it needs to be defined by you and not a society that is already sick and ill at a social level. Why would I allow that society to define 
who and what I am. Just becoming aware of those things and then having the courage and finding people that are like-minded and people that you can be in community with. Like it takes, I think, a bunch of different pieces, but along the way, many times you're muscling through and you're falling down and you're having lows and falling into depressive areas. And it's literally at times survival. Mm -hmm. Um, But just knowing that if you don't do it, if you don't move forward, then it just won't happen. It's just not going to happen. No, it's just going to be the hamster wheel. Each one of those days that goes by of feeling disconnect, which we're not meant to live like that, and we can't survive like that. We're not meant to do that to just live in this little silo or to just completely self-abandon. I remember being in a really depressive state at one point, really depressive state because it was just like everywhere I turned, it felt hollow. That performative part makes it almost worse because then there's that, again, that self-abandonment. I can't bring my full self forward. And with multiple marginalized identities like you have, how do you bring your full self forward? Like, what is that process like? That identity construction of like, this part I can bring forward, but this part I have to leave behind. Coming out really at a late age, but always knowing that I was queer, but knowing that it was not acceptable in any of the environments that I was in. In the Black culture, it was not acceptable. In my family, it was not acceptable, or at least I didn't feel like it was. I was born in 68, so growing up in the 70s and the 80s, some things can be perceived as being a little bit more different and progressive, but the more things change, the more they stay the same. I think that bringing in that queer, getting comfortable with that in my skin and being that part, that was on the tail end of my identity development. I learned very early, even in my family, what it meant what race meant and what being a woman meant. And there was colorism all throughout my family, family members who are, were a lighter hue and had a certain type of hair. They visibly were treated better by many of my family members. Same thing with males, just that male exceptionalism that again goes on within our culture. And this is why when we had the Black Lives Matter movement, we had to go back and have the say her name. Why? Because this became about the patriarchy and it wasn't Black lives, it was Black male lives. And we had to back now and recognize, oh yeah, well, what about the women? Oh, and what about trans women? So I think we're always fighting that fight, Mona, of it being, again, an integrated process and not all of these different fragments that we're trying to bring together. There's this hierarchy, but when we put in these other identities, it's so much more nuanced than that. When we think of queer, I think people immediately go to gay, first of all, right? When they go to gay, what are the identities you think that come to people's mind? Gay white man. That's it. Gay white man. Flamboyant would be the word I hear often, but there's a certain look, a certain vibe, and being queer means being a gay white man, cis man specifically. 
And it's just limited to that. And then I think when you pair that with that black women are hypersexualized for the purpose of pleasing men, I imagine that there are people who can't conceptualize that there's a queer black woman. And I wonder if there's this sense that you've abandoned your community in some way. That abandonment comes in many ways because not only have I abandoned my community in that way from a gender standpoint and identifying as queer, even working in corporate America for 15 years and being a part of a all-union blue-collar family mm. and being seen as a traitor going to the other side. There are so many different ways that you're accused of abandonment, pursuing a PhD, and you think you're more important than everybody else. Instead of people being proud of that accomplishment is seen as a threat. And so there's a lot like to grapple with just day to day, Mona, that it wears on you after a while. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So having your little cocoon, I imagine, is of utmost importance. It is. And having to be the person that's not just speaking truth to power, but also speaking truth to your own people when it needs to be spoken. And that sometime not being something that they want to hear. How do you connect with the people that are in your own family that you love, but are also part of perpetuating the pain? Sometimes we have to cut those ties and we do have to take agency and decide who we're going to have in our orbit and who we're going to have in our circle. And unfortunately, sometimes the ones that we have to exclude are family and they are people that are, you know, genetically related to us. And Mm -hmm. I think we're socialized to have some type of unconditional allegiance to people who we are genetically connected to. And that can sometimes be one of the most harmful things that you can do for yourself. Hmm. I love the way you said that too, this allegiance. And where's the reciprocity in that? At what point, not that it has to be even Stephen all the time, but there has to be some kind of what I call a symbiotic relationship where both are benefiting. And then there's commensalism where one benefits and the other entity is neither harmed nor helped. There has to be some kind of mutualistic relationship in order for you to truly feel a sense of belonging and connection. I can't say it enough. People need people, but it doesn't have to be that person. That's where chosen family, again, I think is just so special. You've chosen those people. It's like your bonus family. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's the best. I love having this conversation with you, Sherry. Thank you so much for being here today. I just love basking in your energy. It's one of my favorite things to do. I could talk with you for hours, and we've done that many a time. (laughs) Many a time, those special sessions of just sitting on the couch and ordering lunch, and we just sit and talk and talk and talk and talk for hours. If people want to reach you for mental health services, if you're in North Carolina, Sherry sometimes runs different groups, webinars, provides training opportunities for folks. You can reach Sherry at Sherry at NorCounseling.com. That's Sherry is S-H-E-R-R-I at NorCounseling.com. It has been such a pleasure. 
Thank you. Thank you, Mona. I appreciate you and love you always. And so happy that we were brought together and I'll be happy to be a part of anything that you're envisioning in the future. Including- no, don't say that because I'm going to oh, come on yeah. out there for you. Oh, I mean it. <laughs> Thank you, Mona. I really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you, Sherry. I love you, Beck. Take care.